Are the bad kings still anointed by God? Uh, you know that I said last week that anointing by oil is what happens when you become a king. And uh, the Hebrew word for the anointed one is Messiah or Messiah. And the, the Greek one for that is Christos, Christ. So Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah. And so was David and so was Saul and so was Solomon and so on. The question is, can when they turn bad, do they stay anointed? Well, Saul, he didn't continue on as uh, he was rejected by God and uh, in a sense the anointing of the Holy Spirit was taken away from him Um, what happens in the future well God actually promises he won't take that away from his kings and we'll see more in due course question two if God can change his mind how can he know the future very good question Uh, even as I prepared the first question I came across with this verse and the Lord was sorry he had ever made Saul king of Israel The Lord reacts to us. Now that's nice, but that's a bit of a theological, philosophical problem for us, and rightly so. Because if God is up there and he's in control of the universe and he's planned everything out till kingdom come, then how is it that something can happen, like a prayer or an event, and he goes, oh, I'm affected by that. Doesn't that in some sort of way mean that he's no longer in charge of stuff? Can you see the the quandary? Part of it is that we have a view of God that's been influenced by, well, it's called classical theism. It's, a, it's an old, old way of thinking about God and gods that isn't actually Christian, but it's, it's an ancient way of thinking that says, let's make a view of God that's kind of like he's superhuman. So we'll say that there are a few things that he's not. So, for example, um, he, he's not biased, he's, he's not unkind, he's not all these things. And then we'll say a few things that he's positively. So he's, he's super strong, he's super everywhere. He's super. So we set this picture up of God and we say he's up there. And one of the things is that he is without passion. And that is he's without emotions because that's a human thing and it's negative. And I understand that. And we don't want our judges to be affected so that they make a bad decision because someone cries a lot when they're in the courtroom. Nor do we want God to be like that as well. We want to say, listen, you need to run this place and, and not get wobbly when the world gets wobbly. However... The Bible in many times shows us that God does appear to react to us. So he's sorry for this. He was grieved that he made man and so he then sent the flood. Or he, and then other times where it's clear that he hears our prayers and he reacts to them. So how do we hold those two things together? Well, like all these things, we've got to hold on to the fact that God totally is sovereign. There's never a time that he's going to be shaken up, that, that things are going to happen that will put him off his game. He is completely sovereign and has the world worked out. But at the same time, the scriptures are clear that in some sort of way, he testifies to his relating and reacting to us. Now, how do you hold those two things together? It's a tough one in our heads, but the Bible unblushingly speaks of both. And so I think that's the way for us to understand God's world. He never stops being sovereign, but he's also with us and he's connected to us. I think that's a beautiful thing for our evangelism, for our prayers and for our way of understanding God. Question three, how can we know that the Bible is true? Well, the first question is, is the Bible history? Well, if you're, a the- if you're a historian, not a theologian, if you're a historian, you've got all these little tests that you do to work out whether an historical document is legit. 
You know, how old, how close was it written to the time when the event actually happened? How many original documents are they? Do they perfectly agree with each other or do they, do they say slightly different things? There's all these different things. And when they run all those tests on the Bible, it comes up ticking all the boxes. The Bible definitely is history. But is the Bible true? Well, there's a point when you read something, whether it's a 2,000-year-old document or whether it's just something that's in today's newspaper, you've got to say, do I believe that it is true? Sometimes it's a smaller leap of faith to believe something 2,000 years ago than the newspapers, but that's a story for another day. But, but we, we read stuff, we've got to say, yes, I, I believe that to be true. And so when we believe that, that, peop- that five, when the Bible says that 500 people saw the risen Christ and they're alive today, which was when it was written, we've got to say, well, that's what the historical document says. Do I actually believe it is true? I've got to have a reaction. Or a, I've got to make a decision about that. And so that is where you personally have to decide that. Now, I believe it's true. Millions and millions of Christians believe it's true. And there's another thing, though. The Bible is the only living document in the world. It's the only document where the author is actually present when you read it. And so the Bible has God present by his Holy Spirit as we're reading the Bible. And so the Bible testifies to the truth of the events. If you're a friend of Jesus, you'll know this, that when you read the Bible, it's a spiritual event. And if you're not yet a friend of Jesus, then as you open up the Bible, God actually says that he will speak to you through it. So don't take my word for it. I mean, you can take the historian's word for it, that it's legit history, but sit down and have a read of it. And I trust that as you do so, you will see that it is true and it's good. Question four. Were Adam and Eve the only people around when they left the garden? Oh, there's so many meaty questions about the first few chapters of Genesis. Uh, it's clear that Adam was the first human man and Eve was the first human woman. And so, therefore, the Bible says that all descendants came from them. Now, where it gets slightly tricky is you, you get to the chapter just after they're kicked out of the garden and uh, Cain is worried that people around him might harm him. And you're thinking, hmm. Where did they come from and how does that work? Now, I'm not entirely sure how that all works, but I do know that the Bible says that Adam had other sons and daughters and that he lived to 930 years of age. So if he's got a happy marriage, then there's probably lots of happy kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and over 930 years, that's quite a lot of people. And sometimes you can be scared of the, your family members who are around you, let alone complete strangers. So I, you know, who, who knows exactly? But it, it's, as they say, it, it seems very plausible that uh, uh, what, what the Bible says is true, and I believe it is. Question five. Uh, we are asked, who is the we in Romans 1.5? Uh, Who cares? Oh, well, we do care. We care. Uh, It says here, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Uh, I'm quoting there from the version of the Bible called the NIV, the 2011 version, because it makes this question clearer. Um, The translation we use actually answers the question for us, which is quite good. But what is here is it says, we receive... Now, when I I read that, I naturally think, oh, that's we. You know, that all of us, we're receiving this grace, aren't we? But the next verse says, and you are included among those Gentiles who've been called to belong to Jesus Christ. Oh, who's the you? 
Uh, and who's the we? Well, it seems to me that the we is the apostles. We, it says, the one before, we receive grace and apostleship. So I'm not an apostle. So the we that it's talking about is the apostles. It's writing to the Gentiles, the recipients of the letter of Romans. So when you're reading Romans, we're the you, not the we. All right. Now, how does that, what does that matter? Well, we need to keep reading the Bible that way. We need to realize that the Bible is written thousands of miles ago, thousands of kilometers away, thousands of years ago to a particular context. And when we understand what the Bible has said to them, we can then understand and join the dots from there to us. And so we are the Gentiles in that way. Good question. I, I take it that it was asked by one of our youth leaders, who's um, all the youth leaders are running Bible studies on Friday nights, and they're going through Romans at the moment. I didn't tell them what to do. Brad and, uh, and Rain didn't tell them. They just thought, hey, let's do Romans. And why not? Question six, our last one. How do our church Bible readings relate to the sermon? We had a similar question a few weeks before. Well, this is a, a follow-up and a slightly different one. Uh, I, I'm surprised, but there are some churches around that don't read the Bible at all. I, I, I visited churches and I think, where's the Bible reading? Didn't happen. Oh, that's a bit weird. I've, I've always grown up in a church that has a Bible reading. Someone comes up and just like Gemma did and they read the Bible. Uh, and that is because, apart from being just a good thing, we read in 1 Timothy, until I get there, focus on reading the scriptures to the church. Or another version, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture. So we have lots of Bible readings in our church, which I love. And uh, often, and in fact the churches I grew up going to, what you would do is you'd have Bible readings that connect up with what the preacher's going to preach on. Pretty normal, totally fine. Totally happy with that. So today I'm preaching on 1 Kings chapter 2. So that would be one of the Bible readings. And then as I'm going through it, I'm seeing different, different stuff. I think, well, I need another Bible reading as well from the New Testament. What am I going to pick? Mm, maybe 1 Timothy chapter 1, which talks about how the law is good and about how Christ died for our sins, which are some of the themes that will come up. So we read those bits and then the preacher gets up and preaches on one of those bits of the Bible and refers to the other bit, which is great. What we are doing now is we are doing something slightly different. We're actually hooking ourselves up to a wider church calendar that's around the world. So this coming Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. We've got 40 days leading up to Easter Day, and uh, just uh, to Good Friday. And, and it's a kind of a way of thinking that, that tunes us up to the countdown to Easter, which is kind of good. We have a countdown to Christmas. We have a countdown to Easter and all those sorts of things. And so we've got a bunch of readings out of this book, which is called The Australian Lectionary. And over three years, we get a bit from the Old, a bit from the Gospel, a bit from the New Testament, and a Psalm. And we read that over three years, and we read it in connection with all churches around many churches around Australia and those individual readings have connections so did you see two that talked about leprosy today I'm not talking about leprosy at all uh, next week it's going to be something that talks a, a little bit about God's covenant and so there'll be a bit from, Mo, from Noah and there'll be another bit from somewhere else and so they're in a bit of a theme from themselves so we've got, we've got the, the readings that are doing their thing and then we've got the Bible talks the sermons that are on another bit of the Bible and we've got your own private Bible readings that you'll be reading day by day and over, over the years Think about how much Bible we're going to get into us. It's so good to hear God speak to us that way. And so that's how they connect. Thanks for listening to Jamaloo and the Lane Church.